Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I love to talk to creative people, and today I have two guests, Andy and Danny Valentine. They are a married couple, and they are the filmmakers behind the movie The Mattachine Family, which is screening at Outfest on the 22nd of July. It also is part of their virtual film festival. And so if you're listening to this after that date, you can stream it online for a week or so. So check that out at outfestla.org. Danny wrote the script and Andy directs the film. It's about a gay couple and they're trying to have a child and all the things that come up as they're trying to do that. I'd never seen a film quite like that where the driving force was to to have a a child. And um, they do a beautiful job with it. It's well acted. looks wonderful. It's shot in like the Silver Lake area of LA and um, I was really into it. So, so excited I got to talk to the guys. Before we get to the interview though, I want to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by Mountain Dew. No, it's not. It's not. I have no sponsors. It's just me. So if you like what you hear, you can support my podcast in two ways. You could um, leave me a tip in my virtual tip jar at DennisAnyone.net. Helps me cover my expenses. Or I'd love it if you considered becoming a subscriber to DNR Studios. That's a group of shows that I'm part of. You pay a monthly subscription fee. You get my show two days early. You get all these other great shows. And you can learn about that at DNRStudios.com. All right, that's enough for the plugs. Here now is the interview with Danny Valentine, the writer, and Andy Valentine, the director, and their movie is The Mattachine Family. Joining me now via Zoom from Silver Lake, California, it's Andy and Danny Valentine. They are the filmmakers behind the movie The Mattachine Family. Andy directed it. Danny wrote it. And they're here on the podcast. Welcome, guys. Thank you so much for having us, Dennis. We're excited to chat about the film. Well, I, you just told me you're in Silver Lake, and your movie is like a Valentine to Silver Lake because there's so many wonderful shots, the, you, the water, and the Mattachine Steps are a feature of Silver Lake, and they're very close to a friend of mine's house. He's, he lives very close there. Um, and they figure in your film. Can you talk a little bit about those steps and why you wanted to include them and actually name the movie in a way after them? Yeah, so I'll, I'll talk to that. So when I was writing the film, I, I mean, it's so much centered around... Um, Andy's and my like life and we lived in Silver Lake at the time and as I was including you know like places that we would go and things that we would see um, part of the film is like a thought about like the history of LGBTQ people and like the way that they form families and when I learned about the steps and that they were in our neighborhood I kind of researched them and I was really inspired by the idea of like this like it's the Thomas says in the film that like in the past this they didn't necessarily refer to themselves as a family. They had to kind of shroud it in this, this word, like society. Right. The Mattachine Society was a a gathering of, of gay people. Right. Yeah. So I, I think part of that, like, you know, the history is, is present in the, in the movie as well as Thomas is thinking about like the future of like what LGBT people's lives can look like now and how it's changed over time. So that's something that I felt like I wanted to include in the film as, you know, part of the neighborhood and part of the history and part of the story. I once went on a gay history tour of Los Angeles and it was in a double-decker bus and we learned all about that and everyone was given roles and I was Harry Hay, who I think was kind of like the big guy, like the man. I felt like I had the lead, is the point, in this bus tour and I I tried to carry it off. Um, Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about the story that know nothing about it? Um, Andy, why don't you take that one? Sure. Uh, so the Mattachine family is a, is a film about a gay couple and their journey uh, and challenges to become fathers. 
Um, it follows uh, Thomas, our main character, who's played by Nico Tortorella um, from Younger. And we kind of follow Nico throughout the film and follow him as he decides, does he want to be a dad or does he not want to be a dad? Um, along the way, he hangs out with all of his incredible chosen family, um, from Emily Hampshire from Schitt's Creek to Carl Clinton Hopkins um, from Hacks to uh, Heather Maserato um, from Welcome to the Dollhouse. She's um, totally kinda, a scene stealer. She is so funny in this movie playing that character. So incredible. Yeah. And then I, and we are forever grateful that she wanted to be a part of our film. Um, you know, we see Thomas meet all, meet all of his friends, his chosen family, and we see all these different paths that he can take, whether it be surrogacy, adoption, um, fostering. Um, and, you know, obviously there's conflict in a movie. And so there's a bit of conflict between him and his husband, who's played by Juan Pablo de Pache. Um, and, uh, yeah, I won't give it all away, but it is a, it is a really emotional story that Danny said kind of mirrors our story, uh, into how, you know, gay men, how we became dads. One of the biggest takeaways for me was the performance of the two guys, the, the couple, um, Nico and Juan Pablo, they are so good. They have a scene yeah. in an apartment building, and it reminded me of that scene in Marriage Story between Scarlett Johansson and um, Adam Driver, where we're like, we're not coming out of this until somebody's dead. We're not leaving this room. It had that yeah. kind of heated, dramatic, loving, messy thing, and they just nailed it. Can you talk a little bit about uh, why you chose them for the roles and, and what it was like working with those two guys? Absolutely. Um, you know, we definitely did, we had our list of actors that we liked and that we could see in these roles. And we worked with our incredible casting director, Scott Bolin, who is a, a massive Hollywood casting director, you know. Um, and the, we did some chemistry reads via Zoom, because this was during the pandemic, uh, with our actors. And, and Nico and, and Juan definitely, like, hit it off. Um, and we saw ourselves in them, and we saw something new, uh, you know, and that they brought so much to those roles. Um, you know, as an indie, uh, it is always, we are, it is always challenged with the budget and with, uh, how much time we can spend with them. So like we actually did, we had our auditions and then we had one rehearsal with them and then we got into the space. So that scene you're talking about, that was one of those, I was very excited to shoot all of those like fight moments, right? Because it, it, it's something that like, you don't really, as a, you know, I direct commercials and music videos. I don't really get to like do that with, with such like actors and such, you know, actors that, that have something, um, you know, and we were able to, to really create something, you know, on the day, you know, with both of them that, you know, they, they just brought so much to that moment, um, you know, and, and just through their, just through their like interactions with one another, you feel the tension between the two, you know, which I think is just so, important to the film you know you you believe that those characters are very much in love but are just being torn apart you know by this issue um by this challenge that they're facing so it was great danny why don't you tell me where the idea came from to write the screenplay what was the genesis of it i mean it was absolutely reflective of like conversations that andy and i were having between ourselves about you know we got married and we started having conversations about what our life is going to look like in the future and Definitely, I think I was more open to the idea of becoming a parent, and Andy was a little less reluctant, or was a little more reluctant about becoming a parent. And, you know, I looked around and I always say I like, I turned to art to help me like answer big questions or help me understand my own life better. And I, could, I didn't see anything that really 
represented what we were going through. And I felt like, okay, well, this is a void and I want to fill that void. And, you know, the, a lot of the film is, you know, the journey that Thomas goes on where he talks to people who are, you know, he fosters or, or, or adopting or do surrogacy. Like we had those conversations with people as we went through it. And we had that back and forth between our, between us talking about like, okay, well, what concessions are we willing to give about what life we could have and what life I want, what life he wants. So it was all kind of taken from real life and um, yeah, meant to serve a purpose because I felt like, how is it that there's this kind of story has never been told before like this? Well, I don't think I'd ever seen a story about a gay man who wanted to be a father so badly. That becomes um, Thomas's, uh, Nico's character Thomas's, that is like his driving force, almost like an obsession. That feeling inside him, which I don't really relate to. I, I, I never really longed for it in the way that some people do. But I understand that you guys are now fathers, right? Didn't you uh, end up pursuing that that road? Everything kind of happens at once, right? So it was like our first feature got greenlit and then it was oh our we went through surrogacy our our surrogate uh was pregnant and so this was all happening at the exact same time of like filming so we got done filming and then uh our daughter florence was born four weeks later so it was a very uh uh when i look back now it's like a very wild thing to think that we like made this movie um about you know the desire to about a character and his desire to become a dad. And then we were literally dads a month later. Um, and then as we, you know, a director's half my work is done when I leave set. And then the other half starts in editing. And like, I was then spent the next, you know, nine months in post on the film as the dad. So it was like, I related to the film very differently um, in post. So it was, a, uh, you know, I guess it was best of both worlds. Um, but yeah, we, we have a daughter now, which is, which is crazy, you know, 19 months old, um, you know, but we love it and are very thankful, uh, to have her here. So. Wow. Talk about two big things happening at once. Um, what surprised you about being a, being parents? What's different than you thought it would be? That's a good good question. (laughs) Or is it exactly Um, what you thought it would be? I mean, I think it's, it is definitely, it's harder than I thought it was going to be. And it, the like love that I have for my daughter is very, very strong and it is unconditional. But like taking care of someone is something that you don't really, you, you know what to expect. You, you think you know what to expect until you're like in that moment when that one person relies on you for every aspect of life. You know, I feel like our relationship also has grown substantially, you know, in, in the past year and a half as well. And I'm seeing a a different side of Danny that I hadn't seen before. I mean, we've been together now for like 14 years, years, you know? So, um, yeah, I'll say too, that I think making a film working creatively together in a partnership before we had the child was a really helpful, uh, experience in negotiating parenthood because it's working creatively. We had to kind of negotiate um, compromises and work together collaboratively. And I think that that was also like a really great training ground for parenthood because it's a lot of compromising and, yeah. and finding middle ground. And yeah. Do you, what do you guys disagree on in terms of the filmmaking? Is there a thing where like, uh, this was our biggest beef and we just uh, had to figure out a way to get through it? I think that there's with any filmmaking there with any filmmaking, but especially any filmmaking, there's always like limitations. So right. it's like always a dream, right. That you can do more. And right. it's not, 
And the more as a filmmaker, as filmmakers, it's that we feel like more helps us tell the story in a better way. Right. And, and this so, needs to look like a big party, period. Like, correct. yeah. So, right. Yes. And this is the music we want. Yeah. This is the, uh, the kind of camera moves we want. This is the lighting we want. Right. And when you have more money, you can do more of that. And as filmmakers, we feel like that helps better tell the story. And so with an indie film, you're given a, a small budget to make this happen. And so, you know, you have a limited amount of we have 20 days to shoot this movie. Um, and so there was a lot of, uh, compromise with us about what we had originally envisioned the script you know, being, you know, right. you can read a script and you can go great. Like that script can be made for five times the amount of money that you actually had if, if you had it. And we didn't have that. So we made it for five times, I guess, less what we originally had wanted to make it for, you know? So there was definitely some compromises along the way there. You had to cut the car chase through the white party. That scene had to go. But there's no wardrobe. Everybody's just uh, naked pretty much. So that would have been <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Um, how hard was the movie to get made? Cause it's a beautiful production. It looks like there's money. It, it just has a, a, a sort of classy um, feeling to it. How hard was it to get it going? I mean, it took, it took a long time for us to find the financing um, to get it done. I, we really credit when Zach Graff, our executive producer came on board you know, he lent his name and his experience to the project and helped us with the script and helped mentor me along the way. Um, in addition to all of our producers working tirelessly, you know, to find that money. And then also the fact that it is our, our really, it's our first film. So I'm very fortunate that I run a production company in LA where we do commercials and music videos. So I was able to call in a lot of favors with right. my crew and, you know, people that I pay, uh, to do, uh, you know, a commercial shoot and I pay, uh, you know, our, you know, great standard LA rates, you know, I was able to call them in and say, Hey, this is a movie, you know, and uh, of course all of these people, all of the crew who worked on it, you know, had been working with me for years and working with Danny and I for years. So they all knew about this project and I had couldn't stop talking about Madison family. We're going to make it one day, you know, and, and also some of the people that were brought on also just felt really like they read it and they responded to it and felt really connected to it. And they wanted to work on it. Like, like Julia, the DP, she's like an incredible cinematographer and she was willing to like do whatever to make it happen to be on this film. And like, she wanted to be part of it. And there were a lot of people like that on the film who just wanted to be part of telling the story and were willing to like do whatever they could to make it happen. To make it this, work. And the same goes for the actors. That mm -hmm. was, it was all very much, um, you know, they all, all, obviously they liked the story and they liked our pitched pitch when we, we talked to them, but they also all had like some sort of like personal connection to it and felt like it was necessary. Like they were willing to, you know, give us, you know, 20 days or 10 days, you know, on set, you know, they could go make a lot more money doing something else, doing something else for some other big uh, studio or network. But they felt it was important to tell the story because they, it was a story that, you know, hasn't been told. So at least we feel it hasn't been told this way. How were you able to get uh, Zach Braff on board? Um, is one of those, I, I always say Hollywood is like, uh, half talent, half luck. Right. Um, and, that was, and, uh, intern at his management company read the script. Um, we had made like a 10 minute, um, sizzle that I had worked with an incredible storyboard artist to kind of build my vision for the film and what it looked like. And we had interviewed other, um, 
uh, LGBTQ plus parents in this sizzle. And so Zach, like some in- an intern read it and it got it to Zach um, and thought that Zach might be interested in this film. You know, he was, he was looking to, uh, to, to produce uh, some movies um, and help some filmmakers, you know, independent filmmakers. And um, yeah, it, it got him. And obviously he, you know, he had, uh, you know, saw the, saw the, the potential of the script and, and loved the sizzle reel that we had put together. Um, and so, yeah, we were very fortunate that he, that he got on board. That's amazing. Let's hear for the interns. Uh, give that guy a raise. Andy, what was it like for you to shift from a commercial director to this kind of storytelling? Were there moments where we're like, we got to see the can right? Lang, you're like, no, that's not what this is about. This is about something else. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think it was like, uh, it was something that to be a film director is like something that I've like always dreamed of. Um, and like ever since I was a kid, I wanted to direct a movie. And so, you know, everything in my life from music videos to commercials, like led me to this moment. And so, um, you know, I think, uh, the luxury with like commercials is that you have a lot more time to do things. You know, if you want to shoot that Coke can, you can go shoot it. You're going to spend three hours shooting that one Coke can and you're going to get 10 different shots and yeah. you're going to, and turn around and you're going to see an agency behind you. And then you're going to see the client behind them and you're going to get 50 people's approval on that shot. Um, and you just have a lot more time to get more options. And with an indie, it's like, you know, you, we're in and we're out and I've got to shoot 10 pages a day. So, you know, that, that uh, you really just, you're relying on the art that you make in that moment, you know, um, when the, this, the, you know, the scene with, Thomas and Oscar and that argument in the, in the house, you know, that was a seven page scene and we had one day we walked into the house and, and we, I knew I had to shoot that and block it all in the same day, you know? Um, and so, uh, you know, we probably got like three or four takes of it, you know, from various angles, but, um, I relied on the talent of the actors, you know, and the talent of the crew to to do something incredible in such a short period of time to make that happen. So, uh, well, they pulled it off. Um, one of the things that happened in the story that I was like, "Ooh, that's a complication." Is uh, Juan Pablo's character Oscar is an actor, and he's been kind of on the outs. Like he had he had some success early on, and he's been like struggling, and he gets his big break, but it takes him out of town. And I just know from living in LA and and having dreams in entertainment and having friends like that, that is non-negotiable. He is doing that show. He is yeah. doing that show. You cannot tell an actor you can't do your series because we're going to try to have a kid. It is a non-negotiable thing because you know, in a way, that's as precious to him as as. It's not like somebody that's like you're working at a bank. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but. Um, I just thought that complication was really interesting. Can you talk a little bit about that aspect of the story and why you wanted one of them to be an artist? Sure. I think that the idea that, um, I think that we felt like that was like a very valid reason of why Juan Pablo's character didn't want to have a child is that he was career focused and that he was somebody that put everything into his career, which is something that like I identified with that I, you know, personally, it was always, I want to make a movie before we have a child. Like that was in our arguments that we had had about, um, you know, what life looked like for us. It was like, I have to go make a movie. Like I need to do that first before we have a child. And then eventually, obviously, you know, the fact that I made the movie and then the the baby came a month later, it was, there was a little like overlap there. Um, But we also felt like that was just like a very, that a lot of people could recognize themselves in Juan Pablo's character, 
of why it was important to, um, you know, for him to have that dream. That was his dream right. to become an actor. It wasn't just his too, job. It was his identity. It was this whole right. thing. Yeah. There's something about the way that Thomas's past childhood and Oscar's past are mirrored into their present. So like Oscar was a child star and that's coming back now. And then Thomas's loss of his father when he was a child is like really impacting and motivating him to pursue fatherhood now. So just kind of also thinking about the way that those played and that their pasts and how they're, you know, re-manifesting in the future as well. I think we like looked at that conflict as something valid between the two relationships. So it's not like, one of them is right and one of them is wrong. Like right. that would make an easy decision for the audience to be like, oh, I'm on his side or I'm on, I'm on his side. You know what I mean? Like both of those were valid reasons of what they wanted. And there's obviously a natural conflict there. Um, and which is, you know, obviously the thing, one of the, the biggest themes of the film that we explore, you know? So, yeah. What was a day on the set that you'll always remember just because of the way things came together? Or maybe it was a, such a disaster that it will haunt you. Just something that you're like, oh, I'm never going to forget this moment. There was a really pivotal scene in the film um, that takes place. I won't spoil it, but it takes place between uh, Nico um, and Emily Hampshire. And it was originally, I was supposed to shoot it on Sunset Boulevard. It was a very emotional moment. And uh, I remember we, we had shot another scene on Sunset Boulevard in the, during the day. And I had multiple people from the crew come up to me. Uh, my first AD, uh, the second AD, my production designer, my script supervisor, and they, you know, uh, part of the director, right, uh, being a director is that I make thousands of decisions a day as a director, and hopefully I get 95% of them right. right. And in that day, I chose this location on Sunset Boulevard, and it was the wrong decision. It just was not a beautiful cinematic location. The traffic was loud. And, uh, and a lot of the crew came up to let me know. And I was like, this is weird. Usually crew does, usually my crew support me. They don't come up to me and be like, are you sure you want to do this here? Right. And, uh, and so I, so I like knew something I had to, I had to change something. So I was like, everybody, we're, we're getting in vans and we're going somewhere else. And so we like went and stole and stole this location, um, you know, down in Elysium park and you see the downtown Los Angeles and we did it in the sun was setting. And I think we did the whole scene in 45 minutes. Um, and it was one of those like magical moments where it was the sun is setting and I'm like biting my nails. I'm like, am I going to get this pivotal scene? You know, did I make the right decision as a filmmaker to change the location last minute? Um, and it ended up being, you know, obviously one of the best decisions. It's, it's really one of the most cinematic moments of the film, you know, and it's such a pivotal location. And and just being there in that moment with the sun setting with downtown Los Angeles, it just says so much more about the movie. Um, will be like a day that I'll, I'll never forget. And I'm forever thankful, you know, to the crew for telling me what they thought. And, you know, being able to to speak their opinion, uh, and I took it to heart. You know, it was a surreal moment when I'm knocking on Emily Hampshire's you know trailer door. I'm like, "Hi, Emily. We're gonna like get in a van, and we're just gonna go real quick over here. Like, right. it wasn't what planned and talked, but we're just gonna go do it." You know. Um, so yeah. Now she's hot off Shit's Creek, um, Emily. Yes. Did she yes. regale you with Shit Creek stories, or was it uh, were there Shit Creek fans swarming the trailers and things like that? It was it was like a it was a big get that she was uh, willing to do this movie, right? She was 
it definitely, I mean, she has been in so many movies the last year and a half, so many indie films and, and so many people want to work with her. Um, and so it was, uh, we, we got like a, a, a video of her. She had like read the script on a plane and she was crying and she was like, I love this movie. I want to do it. And she like sent us this video and, uh, it was just like a, a really incredible, uh, experience for us as being like, just as you know, we're, we're huge Schitt's Creek fans. Um, you know, so, uh, a dream come true and, and hopefully people will be able to, you know, you know, she definitely plays a different character than her, uh, role in Schitt's Creek than, than Stevie. But, um, uh, I, I like it. I think it's a, it's a, it's, it's great. Yeah. She's cool she in it. She's kind of glamorous. She's kind of like, yeah. she's like, it's a different side. And I was like, Ooh, yeah. I'm into it. Um, being in a creative partnership like this, do you find that it helps with the ups and downs of the business part? Like the dealing with the the no's and the disappointments? Is it the idea that maybe one person's ready to give up, but the other one's like, no, we can do this. Like you can, you, you, you've got somebody to round out the bottoms, I guess. Or uh, is that something you relate to? Yeah, I think definitely over the course of like the five years it took to get the movie made, there were definitely moments where Andy would come home and be like, they they passed. It's over. The movie's dead. And, and you do feel it when you're in a partnership, like even if I'm disappointed, you kind of, one of you have to, has to kind of be the opposite and be like, no, it's okay. Yeah, you're right. It does. It does play out that way. Multiple times. Most, most yeah. of the time. I think sometimes it's like, <laughs> we, we want to both feel sad. We both feel sad. Yeah. That's like the, or we, really happy, you know? Right. Right. We can both, I come home, you know, here he, I go home with bad news and then he's, then he's depressed and I'm like, you're more depressed than I am. Why am I not more depressed about this? And, yeah. and we can like build on that. I mean, we've been together for a long time so I can like read, you know, we can like read every emotion, you know, yeah. from, from, so you never wanted to jump off the Hollywood sign on the same day. That's, no. that's good. Um, where did you guys meet? We met in the marching band at Michigan State. Yes, you did. Who plays what? Uh, Danny plays alto saxophone and I play tenor saxophone. Interesting. Oh, so, yeah. Is and there so a hierarchy we, in the band? Is like, does, is like, do tenors think they're better than altos or is it pretty even? I, I, altos, there were more altos, more so, altos. So they, they felt like they were better than the tenors, the tenors, you know, I, tenors were, were like weirdos, you know? So the altos are like maybe some of the cooler people in the band. And that's saying a lot because bands, it's like just a bunch of nerds, right? right. So, yeah. So you get to be the cool, you get to be king of the nerds. Right. Um, yeah. I love that. That's such a fun place to meet. Do you guys ever play anymore? Do you bust out the saxes? I was, I, <laughs> A couple of months ago, I got my saxophone out and I was doing like a, there's a LGBTQ band that meets and I did a couple of rehearsals with that. Yeah. Yes. It was rough. Yeah. <laughs> and he out. got that out at the house and I was like, Ooh. but I was like, it's been a while, babe. Like that was a little rough. <laughs> right. I want but you to a- do like Rob Lowe and St. Elmo's Fire. That may be too young a reference for you, but he, you know, he's playing the sax in that band and he's like, let's rock. Uh-huh. Anyway, um, here's a silly question. What is it like to have the name Valentine? Do people make romantic jokes or is everyday Valentine's Day? Like, what is it like? That's my line that I, my dad, that my dad used always is that every day with me is Valentine's Day. Um, I, I, I feel like it's where I'm very, we're very fortunate to have that last name. Like, right. Like that's People comment all the time. People comment all the time. Valentine. That's so cute. Yeah. Like we're, it's like a lucky, I, I feel like it's lucky that, that, that we're Valentine. Um, it's all upside. Yeah. It's all upside. All right. Yeah. 
I have a few random movie questions that I like to ask movie people. So here we go. What movie costume do you wish you owned so you could wear it around the house? I'll go first. Anything from Saturday Night Fever. I want a disco suit. I want those polyester shirts. That was my jam. I was so into it. Although I could never fit into those outfits. I uh, love period films. So I'm like, the thing that goes is like anything. Uh, I'm like thinking the Marie Antoinette, the Sophia Coppola oh. film. Oh, yes. Like, I'm to like dress as Marie Antoinette like once. A little powdery wig. Yeah. I like it. I probably want to dress like Harry from When Harry Met Sally and all those like big sweaters. I and, like, feel like you dress, I already feel like you dress like Harry. <laughs> I feel like that's our, you already that have, is the like, last answer I thought you, you would have. give. You know, the, 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 the timeless Fine. sex appeal of Billy Crystal as Harry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like it's either Iron Man or that, you know. Yeah. Um, what movie have you seen the most times? Titanic. Really? Interesting. That's a lot of in, that's a big investment. That's a long movie. You love it. Why yeah. do you love it? Uh, I think I don't know. I was like a ten year old gay boy obsessed with Kate Winslet, so right. I like would watch it over and over and over again. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Uh, probably Little Miss Sunshine. Interesting. It's yeah. cute. It holds up. It's good. Um, you guys are already in a couple, but here's a question: that if you weren't, you meet the love of your life standing in line at a revival house movie theater. What movie's showing? That's kind of a thinker. Probably uh, some old Star Trek movie. Interesting. So it's a Star Trek thing, but vintage, old school. Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Probably a Star is Born, the Judy Garland version. Yeah. Oh, interesting, right? All right. Very different. We would not meet. You would not we meet would that not, way. We do have different movie tastes, which yeah. is like very interesting. Uh uh, but and, but then there is there is some overlap. But I mean, yeah. I like a Star Trek, right? But I'm not going to watch it over and over again. Yeah, he would watch it over and over again. He is. I would watch Star Trek movie Rather Khan over and over again. He he is not going to watch that over and over again. Yeah, so. once is one and done with that. Um, what movie did you see when you were too young to see it? I'm trying to think. Anything scare the uh, crap out of you? Oh, Exorcist. I saw The Exorcist way too young. Ooh, that would, yeah, I would do that. Yeah. I don't know. I'm like remembering a movie. Uh, I, I remember watching, uh, this is TV. I don't know. Oh, we'll take is, it. I, I remember watching Undressed on MTV. Like, as a, I would flip. Undressed is like kind of this like. Yeah, there was uh, gay people on Undressed. It was like a sexy people. thing. I remember watching that and I was like, I was like shirtless oh, kissing. I, there was a lot of shirtless kissing. And I was like, what is this? I like this. A and I remember of- my dad had like made on the remote, you couldn't go to 28, which was MTV, which is where Undress played. It was like you would, when you were doing the channels, it would skip over MTV. You had to type in 28 to get to MTV. Your dad uh, did that to the remote? Yes. Oh, wow. yes. My dad, my, I grew up in like a very evangelical household, um, you know, very anti LGBTQ, went to this church. Now my parents are wonderful right. and they've left that cult, um, you know, so. Well, that, that's really interesting. I know we're almost out of time, but that, uh, that makes me see your movie in a little different way because there's such a feeling of community and love and family and acceptance and stuff in the movie. I mean, yeah, I mean, it was like a, it was a, you know, as, as most LGBTQ people, like the coming out process, it was not an easy one. And it, it took many years of convincing 
my family of why I was fine. This being gay is who I am, um, you know, and, and now I have this incredible relationship with my family. Um, and that was also uh, an important thing that we wanted in the film is we really didn't want homophobia to be present in this film. While that is like a very important aspect of our community and something that we experience every day, sometimes it's okay just to like let go of that and, and say, we're not going to, we're not going to address all of that. We, there really isn't a lot of uh, discussions about like the conflict of being queer in the movie. Yeah. Um, it is a lot of like, I, I am who I am and I have all of these other problems, which is something that we were, you know, very fascinated uh, to see in a film, right? Like it is a, the coming out story is something that um, has been done and is still very crucial to our community. Um, but we wanted to kind of expand on some of those other conflicts that we, that we have, you know, as a LGBTQ Plus club. I love it. Well, that really came across and, and something I appreciated very much. Um, we're going to wrap it up, but I want to remind people your movie is screening at Outfest on the 22nd. It's also going to be available to stream online, I think nationwide, so uh, for a week after that. So you can watch it wherever you are, and I think you should watch it. I have two more questions. One is, have you thought about showing the movie to Florence, what that time will be like when she's old enough to get it? Yes. It'll be like a weird, it'll be weird we definitely we like dedicate the movie to our daughter at the end um and and there is so much heart and desire from nico of wanting a child that we'll be able to say that that was us that right. you were you were very much one at florence you know it the idea of um you know it's not traditional to go through surrogacy to go through adoption to go through um fostering you know but the people who do that you know, you know, most of them, it's because they, they really want a child. And that is the way that, that is the way that, you know, they have to do it. Um, and, uh, yeah. No, I think she'll see that and go, wow, you guys really, (laughs) you really wanted me. Um, and here's my final question for both of you. What is it meant to you to have worked on this project and seen it through? I mean, I don't know. It's cliche, but a dream come true, honestly. Like, I think I can like remember sitting on my bed, like writing the first couple pages of the script and like the idea that like, and that was, you know, when we're on set, like seeing these things come to life was like so surreal and like such a, I I don't know. I I never could have fathomed it actually happening as much as I believed it would. But but, yeah, I think for me, just like happy that we were able to do it. Like after so many projections and so many people telling us no that they weren't in, that what is this movie about a, you know a gay couple and their journey to become dads like that is not for us you know you know we i guess we made this you know equally for ourselves and for our daughter and for you know hopefully uh, a community that will you know be able to to recognize themselves in the film so forever grateful that we were able to do this uh and to be our first film and then hopefully we'll be able to to build, you know, a, a little production company and make movies every year. This is the dream. I love it. Well, th- thanks for doing the podcast. Happy Valentine's Day. Do people say that to you thank a lot? You. Yeah, every, they do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> every day is Valentine's Day, so thank you. All right, all right. Awesome. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Thanks. thanks. Thanks again to Andy and Danny Valentine. Check out the Mattachine family at Outfest. You can learn about that at outfestla.org. It'll also probably be playing other festivals, so just keep an eye out for it. Hopefully it'll end up in theaters or streaming or everyone will get to see it who wants to see it, I hope. All right, so this happened. Outfest has been going on. So 
as you know, I've already had some interviews with different filmmakers, um, but I've seen things that I am not doing any interviews for. I saw a movie called Cora Bora, starring Megan Stalter, who we all know from Hacks, and I fell in love with her on her Instagram during the pandemic when she did that hi gay like thing about the butter churning shop, which I must have watched 50 times. Um, she is the lead of this movie, and you think of her as like a fun side dish kind of actor where you're like, I don't know if I, you know, I don't know if um, she feels like the lead, but she is, and she carries it beautifully, and she is so uniquely funny. And then you kind of find out the reason that she is the way she is, and it's very moving, and I laughed a lot in this movie, and I was also touched by it. Um, so keep an eye out for Cora Bora. That's a fun one. I saw Commitment to Life, my friend Jeffrey Schwartz, a documentary about APLA and the Commitment to Life uh, benefits that they, they used to do with the big stars and just basically the story of a- APLA, AIDS Project Los Angeles. And um, it, it was great. And Jeffrey's been on the podcast before, so I, I was happy to see him and support his movie. I learned a lot. And it really gave LA, it took LA and gave it a place in the story of of the AIDS crisis because we see New York a lot in stories we see San Francisco but I felt like a lot was happening here and um, it was wonderful to see it uh, depicted captured and they're stars they talk about the Madonna moment where she performed Vogue at the Commitment to Life benefit as a surprise after the MTV Awards which we talked about recently with Vince Patterson on this podcast and I saw Jeffrey afterwards and I said, would it have killed you to include a longer clip of Vogue? I wanted to watch the whole song. And he goes, <laughs> he goes, yeah, it was a rights issue and a money issue. And, you know, we had to move things along. We couldn't just do Vogue in the middle of this documentary for four minutes. But, you know, you can't have everything. But um, it was terrific. I also saw a documentary about the Indigo Girls called um, It's Only Life After All. And I've been a fan of them forever and love their music. I've seen them in concert a number of times. So I was very interested in seeing this movie. Um, but it was so rich and about so much more than them and their career. It brought up all of these really interesting issues about creativity and ego and friendship and kindness. And there was so much that I took from it, and yet it felt cohesive. I talked to the filmmaker afterwards, and we're going to try to do a podcast, I hope, because I just cried through the whole thing. I thought it was just beautiful. So even if you're not a fan of them, keep an eye out for that because it's one of the best docs that I've seen in a long time. I loved it. Oh, and I saw the opening night movie, which is called Aristotle and Dante Explore the Secrets of the Universe. Did I get that right? I don't think it's Dante and Aristotle. I think it's Aristotle and Dante. Um, Another one where I cried through the whole thing. Uh, It's a coming of age story set in El Paso, Texas in the 80s. And um, Eva Longoria is in it. She plays one of the moms. Um, I just thought it was beautiful. Um, Sweet story about these two guys that are friends and maybe something more. And uh, I loved it. It was a great choice for opening night. Um, So yeah, keep an eye out for all those movies. And uh, you know, I love Outfest. It's like Christmas time. It's my favorite. So I've been seeing as much as I can. All right, that's enough for this week. Thank you so much for listening. I want to give a shout out to AJ Sousa. Thanks for mixing the episodes. Also, my theme music is my Bark Daniels for Placement Music. We'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye. Bye.